years old through the fourth grade, you can slip right out there past Mr. Jeremy and go to a special children's Bible time that you will have. There's an exciting story going on in the children's meeting. Don't any of you adults, adults sneak out and go to it. That wouldn't be appropriate, all right? The rest of us, let's find the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, if we can. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 in the Word of God. Let me challenge you, be thinking of somebody that you can bring to these meetings. You say, Brother Paul, how do we go about that? Well, there's a lot of different ways, but if I were you, I'd bribe them with food. I'd say, hey, let's, let, let me take you out to dinner and then we'll just go on to the meetings from there. Now, some of you may have to come in your work clothes. That is not a problem. That doesn't offend anybody. Uh, if you smell bad, well, you know, you can sit over in the corner and we'll put a piece of plastic down so you don't mess up the chairs. And you, you laugh, people laugh when I say that, but you need to understand I'm very, very serious. When I was growing up, my dad was a roofing contractor, okay? That meant that sometimes, Brother Forsberg, if we were going to get to a midweek service, we came stinky. It just, in South Carolina, if you work on the roof, you don't smell good at the end of the day. That's just the way it goes. And, uh, so we, we'd have to, Sometimes we'd have to do that. Sometimes we'd have to skip a meal just so we could be in church. But if you've got to do any of those things, if you've got to pull out a pair, a little pack of crackers and stave off your hunger pains because you just got off work, that's fine. Okay? That's fine. We would rather have you come. And uh, so, so come yourself and then bring somebody with you. Uh, the taste of bread that is shared has no equal. man told, told me that many years ago. And boy, I've never forgotten that. The taste of bread that is shared has no equal. And so, you, boy, you, uh, you find somebody and bring them, and let's just see what God will do. Find some heathens that you work with. If you've got relatives that are heathens, bring them, and uh, we'll, just, we'll see what the Lord has, has for us this week. I'm excited about it, and uh, I'm excited about what God's going to do. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's stand tonight. If you're able to, let's stand as we look into the Word of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll direct our attention there to verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1, the Bible says this, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Lord, help us as we look into this verse, and I pray that you just speak to our hearts. Lord, thank you for everyone that's been faithful on a Sunday night. Lord, many people around the nation have canceled their Sunday night services for what one reason or another, but Father, these have been here, and so I pray that the Word of the Lord would be powerful to meet the need of our heart this evening. We ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for standing. You may be seated. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You know, there's nothing like being clean. I mentioned just a moment ago that my dad was a roofing contractor when I was growing up. And uh, one thing about roofers, they just get dirty. I mean, you get up there in the hot sun and you, and you sweat and you perspire and it's just, a, it's just an awful mess. And then you work around dirty materials. I mean, nobody sees the dirt as it accumulates year after year after year on top of a roof. But when you go up there and start trying to tear it off, it's just a dirty mess. There's a dirty ground to clean up and it's just, there's just dirt everywhere. But there's nothing like after you've been in a dirty job to come home and to get clean. 
As you and I learn to be clean physically, so we need to learn to be clean spiritually. The Bible says this in the book of Isaiah, Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. You and I not only bear the vessels of the Lord, but we bear the Lord Himself as the Holy Ghost of God came to live in us the moment of salvation. And the, the, the Word of God and the truth of the Word of God is this, you and I need to learn to be spiritually clean. Now, I want us to look at this verse. I want us to note three elements of this verse that are very important to this matter of being spiritually clean. I want you to note, first of, first of all, there is a motive here in this verse of Scripture. The Bible says, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved. Now, whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, understand the word therefore is a word of conclusion. It's a word that we used in logic class all the time. What is the word therefore all about? Well, some truth has been presented, and you and I are to reason on the basis of truth that has been presented. Now, in this passage of Scripture, the truth that has been presented are a group of promises. Now, obviously, those promises aren't in chapter 7, but let's go to chapter 6. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and let's find the promises to which he alludes. Notice what the Bible says in verse 17. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 17, it says, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. Alright, now so far, we haven't seen any promises yet in, chapter, in verse 17 of chapter 6. The Bible says there's a command, come out from among them, be ye separate, touch not the unclean thing. Those are all commands, but now here come the promises. Are we ready? Here it is, verse 17, and I will receive you. There's the first promise. Now, this is an interesting promise. The Bible says it, it, it's a promise of, of being received. I will receive you. Now, there's a lot of people today... And uh, sadly, Pastor, I don't know why it is, but we're losing a lot of people out of good churches like this to a crowd that says, you can do anything you want after salvation. God doesn't really have a, a problem with you. I mean, if you want to, if you want to, you're under grace, so what you do doesn't really matter after you got saved. I have a real problem with that. I have a real problem with that because the Bible has a real problem with that. Now, I want you to note the language very, very carefully. Are we thinking tonight? Note the language very carefully. He says, I will receive you. Now, hear me and hear me well. He does not say that He will love us anymore. Right? That's not there. God's love for you and God's love for me is, it, it is a reality irrespective of our works. You didn't work for God's love. I don't work for God's love. That was true before we're saved. That's true after we're saved. So, when by saying, I will receive you, he's not saying that God's going to love me more, that God's going to somehow uh, somehow uh, love me any, any more than He ever did. That's, that's unchanging. But he does say, if you do these things, I will receive you. What does it mean? Well, when I was preaching this message in camp, I had the luxury this past summer of having a man on the camp staff who was certifiably crazy. All right? Now, those people are good to have around. And... Uh, you know, sometimes people have tried to give me a, a, a crazy card. But uh, the truth is, this guy, was he was just nuts. And all the kids loved him. Basically, he stood six feet four inches tall, and yet he was a little child in heart. He was 50-some years of age. But everybody knew he was just a big kid. That's just Brother Jeff. And so his wife was also there. His wife was the one that made you toe the line. Okay? 
And, uh, you know, I think Brother Jeff had been coloring outside the lines ever since he was five years of age. And so he's, you know, he, he just, that's just the kind of guy he was. But in order to illustrate this, here I had a married couple. And God had used them greatly in the context of camp. But I had the luxury of having Brother Jeff Turner go out and begin to roll in the dirt. Now that was right up his alley. I mean, it was camp, and we were in the, in the Gila National Forest. Jeff, go roll in dirt. Oh yeah, the preacher says I got to roll in dirt. Away he went. Down on the ground he went. All the juniors are going, what's going on with Brother Jeff? Why is he rolling in the dirt? Now, his wife, Kelly, is, she's a wonderful lady. But, uh, you know, she's not really into the dirt. And so after, after Brother Jeff was good and covered in dirt, all his clothes had the, the dirt of New Mexico just kind of worked into the fabric and the weave of everything. And man, uh, his, it, was, it was kind of in his hair. He's kind of like me. His hair is departed, you know. And uh, he doesn't have a lot of hair. But what hair he had, boy, it had the dirt in it. And uh, it was in his hat. It was on everything. It was worked into his jeans and into his pants. It was worked into his shirt. He was just covered with dirt. He was just a, a dirt-colored individual at this point in time. And uh, I brought them both up on the platform. And everybody looked at Brother Jeff and saw all the dirt. I said, now, I wonder, I wonder, Brother Jeff, would you be willing to give your wife a great big hug right now and a great big kiss? Yeah, he said, I'd be willing. And she said, uh, no. You can picture that, right? You don't know Jeff and Kelly Turner, but you don't have to because you understand the dynamic. All of us understand. And, and, and as I said to them that day, so I say to you, there was nothing wrong with their love for each other. That wasn't the problem. The problem was, though they did love each other then and continue to do so very much, yet there was something that had come between them that made, uh, that made his wife, Kelly, look at him and say, Jeff, I love you, but you ain't getting a hug from me until you get clean. We all understand that, don't we? Why should it be thought anything different that our God would treat us the same way with respect to the dirt and filth of our sin? The Bible says, Come out from among them, a group of people, and be ye separate, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. On the basis of those promises, that's the first promise, on the basis of that promise, God says, let us cleanse ourselves. That's what He's talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. This first promise I call the promise of acceptance. The Bible says, I will receive you. I don't understand all of it. I don't have all the theological answers, but I know this. God has a greater relationship with a child of God that decides I will live separate from sin and the world. God has a deeper relationship with that kind of person. It's not that He loves them more, but there's a greater fellowship because God says, when you decide to do that, I will receive you. That's not the end of the promises. There's a promise of acceptance, but number two, there's a promise of authority. Look at verse 18. I'm in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. The Bible says, And will be a father unto you. I'll be a father unto you. When I was growing up as a boy, my younger brother, I had two younger brothers, but my, my, the middle brother, James, decided that he was going to have doves for pets. And so, so he decided we're going to have to we're going to have to build a cage for these doves. Now, these doves weren't going to get any normal cage. They were going to get a massive cage. He had the idea, Brother West, that what we're going to do is we're going to make these doves have such a huge cage they don't even realize they're in captivity. That was his idea. 
And so we essayed to, to build it. You know, my dad was in the construction business. I don't know how old we were. It seems like we were about 12 or 11 and 12, something like that. And so, man, we got out saws and we got out hammers and we got out nails and uh, maybe we got out some screws too. I don't remember about that. But we commenced a building and we found some wood and we put it together and man, it was, it was just going together. Now we had done our research. This dove cage was not going to have chicken wire because a chicken hawk can reach through the chicken wire and kill your doves. We weren't going to use chicken wire. No, these doves were going to be safe. We used rabbit wire and we strung it all up and put it all around. And man, I tell you, the best thing about the dove cage really was the roof. I think it had a 40-year warranty or maybe it was a 50-year warranty, something like that on that dove cage. But anyway, Dad was a roofer, so we had access to his scraps. But uh, we got everything done, you know, and, uh, and man, as far as we were concerned, it was, it was the Taj Mahal of dove cages. Now, during that building process, we had boy, as boys had been out there, and we'd been working on it, and everything was good, but Dad was at work. So, he came home that night. We said, Dad, Dad, you got to come see this. you got to come see the dove cage that we built. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. The doves aren't even going to know that they're in captivity. It's a wonderful thing. Dad, you got to come see it. So he said, okay, I'll come see it. Out, out through the house he went, out into the backyard where it was. He came into the backyard and he looked. And there it was. And he did this. He said, Boys, He said, did you ever think to use a square? I knew something was a little off. No, we didn't think to use a square. He said, you, you've built a parallelogram, boys. He said, it leans to this side. He said, furthermore, your grandpa is in construction. He's going to come and see us on his way back from Florida, going back to his house. He's a snowbird. And uh, he said he's going to see us when he comes back, and he's going to come out, and he's going to look at that. He's going to look at me and see. He's going to say, Bob, didn't you ever think to use a square? And you know what? We would have thought to use a square. Everything would have been level plumb and square had only the authority been with us as we built. Do you understand one of the saddest things in American culture today is that we have boys and girls who are growing up without a father. There's a tremendous advantage. I, I don't mean to take anything away from single mothers who have to raise children, but a father is irreplaceable. Can I just tell you, if in the absence of a father, maybe there's some men in this room that could say, you know, I'm not the most talented guy in the world, but I could sure take a little boy and teach him how to how to be a man. I could sure pour myself into him and show him what a man does, how a man responds, how a man acts. And I could, I could teach him some things. There's a tremendous need for that. And I'm convinced if the church doesn't step up and, and meet that need, we're going to have a, a society that goes further and further downhill. We need some men to be able to step up and show a, a boy how to change the oil in an automobile. We need some, uh, we need some people to step up and teach him how to cut a board and how to hammer a nail and how to put in a screw and all, and all just just down the line. Things that you and I might take for granted, but things that, that many boys grow up today, they don't have any idea how to do any of those things because there's never been a father figure and authority figure. Do you understand what God is saying? God is saying if you come out from among them and if you decide to be separate and you touch not the unclean thing, I will be that authority figure for you. I will be a father unto you. It's a promise of authority. 
Not only is there a promise of acceptance and a promise of authority, I want you to notice number three, there's a promise of association. Look at the end of verse 18. The Bible says, Ye shall be My sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. What's He saying? He's saying, I will put My stamp of approval on you, My name upon you, and you will be associated with Me. When I was a boy growing up, I'd get into Dad's vehicles, and boy, we'd drive down the road, I'd get out to buy fuel, and, uh, or, or get out of the job perhaps, and on the side of that truck were these words, Crow Roofing Incorporated. And I would step out, someone would say, oh, young man, what's your name? I'd say, my name is Paul Crow. I'd say, oh, are you any relation? Yes, I am a relation. I'm his son. I'm his son. Now, some sons, because of who their father is, they're entitled to get away with a lot of stuff. Okay? Maybe you've heard of some sons that do those kinds of things. I'll, I'll not go into that this evening, but that wasn't the way it was in my house. My dad told me, he said, son, the time you get on the job until the time that you go home at night, everybody knows that you are my son. Therefore, you're not going to slack up. You're not going to take the easy task. You are going to work. You're going to work hard just because they know you're the boss's boy and they expect that you're going to get away with stuff. But you're not going to do that because you're my son. You're going to work hard. But you know what? That, that, had some, that, that meant I had to work hard. I couldn't get away with anything. But boy, there sure were advantages to being associated with the guy that owned the company. There were all, all kinds of advantages. And similarly, the Bible says, listen, if you'll come out from among them, if you'll be separate, if you'll touch not the unclean thing, I will receive you. I will be a father to you. And ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. There is an association there that is available for you and for me. Those are the promises about which He speaks when He says, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved. Do you understand this? You and I can be saved and live a life as a Christian where we're not really serious about our sin. Or we can get saved and live a life as a Christian where we want to deal with sin every time we see it in our own lives. The Bible says there's promises for this side over here. There's promises for this side over here. And on the basis of those promises, God gives us an exhortation in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1. Notice what it says. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, that's the motive. Notice the method. Let us cleanse ourselves. You see it there? Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Now pastor, i got to tell you, that's, that's not the way that I would expect to read it. I would expect for the, for the Apostle Paul to say something maybe like this. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us surrender ourselves to God so that He can cleanse us. I, I, you might expect that. I think certainly that's a biblical way of saying it. Well, that's the way David put it in Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according unto Thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of Thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. I acknowledge my sin before, and, my, and I acknowledge my iniquity. My sin is ever before Thee. Against Thee, Thee only have I sinned. And on and on he goes. He talks about God cleansing him. I think that's the implication of David in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. He does not ask God to cleanse him, but he does say, God, I want you to look. 
I don't want you to leave any stone unturned. I want you to see everything about me. I want you to judge my motives. I want you to look and see. And I think the implication is, Lord, if you see anything that's wrong, Lord, would you please get it out of my life? That's the implication. That's what he's talking about. So it would be very scriptural for the Apostle Paul to say, on the basis of these promises, let's let God come in and cleanse our sin. That would be certainly a, a scriptural way of putting it. But that's not what he says. He says, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. What an interesting way to put it. Let us cleanse ourselves. Certainly we understand that if any cleansing is to be done, it's because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We understand that from the Scripture. The Bible says it's the blood of Jesus Christ, 1 John 1 and verse 7, that cleanseth us from all sin. That's what the Bible says. We understand that. That's what the Bible tells us. And, and, and we, we've grabbed hold of that. We understand that. And yet, that's not what the Apostle Paul says here. He says, let us cleanse ourselves. Why, I wonder to myself, why would he say that I have to cleanse myself of all filthiness of the flesh and spirit? Why, in the midst of all this Bible truth, would he put it this way? It's different. It's unusual. What is he saying? Why is he saying? I think what the Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is emphasizing is this. There is one thing that keeps you and me from being perfectly cleansed before God. You know what it is? It's the grip that we hold on our sin. Isn't that true before we're saved? Jesus Christ stands ready and willing to offer perfect cleansing for the sinner that's without Jesus Christ. Maybe I'm preaching to somebody tonight, you've never been saved before. Let me tell you something, the Lord Jesus has done everything necessary, everything possible to, to wash away your sin and to make you clean before Him. This is what He says in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. The Bible says in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, For He, that's God the Father, hath made Him, that's God the Son, to be sin for us who knew no sin, Jesus who knew no sin, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That's what He tells us. And I'm telling you, it's an amazing reality that Jesus Christ has done everything necessary, everything possible to make a way of salvation possible. But there are some people that say, no, I'll just hang on to my sin. God, thanks, but no thanks. Some years ago, we were in a trailer park. Uh, the assistant pastor of the church that I'm a member of in, in uh, Mississippi. And there in North Mississippi, we were in a trailer park. We were knocking on doors. We were talking to some folks about their soul and the assistant pastor had encountered this one individual before. He'd witnessed to him. He said, I think we'll, I think we'll go back tonight and we'll just knock on his door. So we did and uh, it, was a, it was a wintry night and uh, don't, don't get the idea it's South Dakota wintry. That just means it was a little cool. Okay, maybe 35 or something like that. But anyway, it was a wintry night and this fellow opens the door and he's got a great big tall beer can in his hand. And we said, uh, hey, we're from, uh, we're from the Clearview Baptist Church, wondering if we could talk to you. He said, sure. He came out, and, and we began to strike up a conversation. I was the silent one in that conversation. I did not have a relationship with this man, a friendship with him, like uh, my, my soul-winning partner, uh, Pastor David Nichols. But David Nichols looked at him, and he, he, said, uh, he said, I wonder, have you thought about the things that we talked about a couple weeks ago? 
about salvation and how that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for your sin. And he just began to ask some probing questions. And the guy said, well, yeah, I mean, what you said made sense and all that. And uh, I just, I, I appreciate it and all. But uh, then Brother Nichols asked a very interesting question. He looked at him and he said, what is keeping you from getting saved right now? That's a great question. If you're here without Jesus Christ, I put the same question to you. What's keeping you from getting saved right now? Jesus Christ has done all the work so, so, with, so that salvation is made possible as a free gift. What is holding you back from trusting Christ right now? Well, that's the question that Brother Nichols put to this individual. The man looked around and he said, well, I'm going to be honest with you. That's something we say a lot in the South. It begs the question, are there a lot of times when you're not honest with us? It, it begs that question. At any rate, he said, I'm going to be honest with you. He said, the thing that's keeping me back from getting saved right now is this right here. He held up his beer can, but I don't think that he intended to say that the alcohol is what's keeping him from getting saved. He held up the beer can as a symbol of the life that he was living. It was a life of immorality. It was a life that had no time or room for God. It was a life in which he was king of his own world. It was a life in which he could sin, and in his mind he could get away with it. And that, and that beer can, that tall beer can, was the symbol of all of that life. He looked at us and honestly said, it's my sin and the love of my sin that's keeping me from trusting Jesus Christ as Savior. And you know what? To my knowledge, he's never gotten saved. He has never accepted that free gift of salvation. And He's honest with us to say, it's my sin that keeps me from getting saved. You know why the Apostle Paul would say, let us cleanse ourselves? Because there is a sense in which the only thing that keeps us from being cleansed is the grip we hold on our sin. I'm not going to let go of that grudge. I'm not going to let go of that sinful habit. I'm not going to let go of that uh, of that uh, internet, the internet practices that I'm involved in. They may displease God, but that's what pleases me. And I'm going to hold on to him. Can I tell you, you can be a born again child of God and you can hold on to sin after salvation. You can say, I'm not going to let this thing go. I'm not going to get it right with God. But we're not going to have revival until some people decide to get serious about sin and to get right with Almighty God. No wonder the Apostle Paul said, let us cleanse ourselves. I wonder if we were to take your internet history and put it up on the screen tonight for the whole church to see. Just from the past week. Would you be ashamed? I wonder if we were to take the texts that you've sent back and forth and project them up on the screen. I wonder, would you be ashamed? Now, I understand. We're not going to do that. I wouldn't want to do that. But understand that the God of heaven sees and knows He's read everything we've ever posted online. He's seen everything we've ever entertained ourselves with online. He's seen all of that. He hears every conversation in the break room, sir. He knows uh, every conversation you've had with friends and other people, ma'am. He knows all of those things. And you know what? That there, there needs to come a time in our lives when we just take an honest look. And we say, Lord, I don't want to be, I don't want to be the arbiter of this. I want you to shine your searchlight in on my heart. And Lord, if there's anything there that needs to get out, I pray that you would show me, and then I'm going to let go of my sin. Let me tell you, revival is a great time to give up a grudge. 
Revival is a great time to give up dirty, filthy habits. Revival is a great time to just come clean on sin and say, Lord, enough. I'm not going to hang on to it any longer. I lay it in Your hands and I want to be clean. I want to cleanse myself. The Bible says, cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of the flesh. That's sins we can see. That's sins other people can see. Outward sins. The Bible says, all filthiness of the Spirit. That sins only God can see. I'm talking about jealousy. Can I, can I just tell you, we've got a problem in our kind of churches with, with filthiness of the Spirit. We discipline people out of the church for adultery. Understandably so. But we sure do allow a lot of self-righteousness. We discipline, we, we'll refuse to marry a couple that's living together out of wedlock. And that's right, we ought to do that. But we sure can overlook a lot of pride in our own lives. And the Bible says, listen, it's time to cleanse ourselves. Child of God, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, the only thing that keeps you and me from being perfectly clean is the grip that we hold on our sin. No wonder the Apostle Paul said, hey, let's cleanse ourselves. Why are you waiting? Why are you holding back? Time to cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. I believe cleansing involves three important issues. Number one, it, it involves admitting the sin to God. You ever heard somebody come and confess sin and say, Well, Lord, if we've ever sinned, I pray that You'd forgive us. Now, I understand the sentiment behind that, but that's not biblical confession of sin. Biblical confession of sin is when I come to God and I say, Lord, here's what I did, here's what I said, Here's what I thought. You have put your finger on it as sin, and I admit to you that what I did was sin. That's biblical confession of sin. And if you and I are going to cleanse ourselves, we've got to start there. We've got to come to God and we've got to ask for forgiveness. And we've got to say, Dear Lord, I claim the blood of Jesus Christ. I don't want this sin to be a part of my life anymore. Would You wash it, wash it away? Would You cleanse me of it? David gives us ample, ample illustrations of that in the book of Psalms. Psalm 51 particularly. He says in, in verse 2, He says, Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So, we need to admit the sin to God. We need to ask God for forgiveness. And then number three, we need to accept His forgiveness. Oh, you know, there are so many people that I meet from time to time and, uh, and they, they come to me and say, well, you know, Brother Paul, I appreciate what you do, but I could never do what you do. I could never serve God in that way because I did this. It was a sin. It was iniquity. And I could never do what you do. Well, let me tell you something. There are sins that have lasting consequences when it, when it comes to positions in the local church. But, if you have sinned and you have asked God for His forgiveness... Rest in His promise of forgiveness. Don't wallow in pity and guilt and self-inflicted guilt. Let me tell you, Satan is really good before we sin to say, ah, that's nothing to that. It's not a big deal. After we sin, he kicks us while we're down and he says, ah, look what you did. You can never serve God. Can I help you tonight? It was a lie before you sinned and it's a lie after you got right with God. So part of the process of cleansing ourselves is to rest in the forgiveness that God gives. Here in this passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, there is there's a motive. These promises. 
There's a method. Let us cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. But I want you to notice number three, and finally, there's a mark here, an aim, a goal. We find it there in verse 1, perfecting holiness in fear of God. My goal as I cleanse myself is so that my life will be like the Lord Jesus. And some people get the wrong goal. We want to compare ourselves among ourselves. The Bible says that's not wise. It's never a good idea. But the Bible says in this passage of Scripture that as I'm cleansing myself, as I'm getting rid of this sin and this pride and whatever it is that that, that is welled up and God has put His finger on in my heart, I'm ready to get right with God and I want to be just like the Lord Jesus. My mother had no daughters. Just boys. There's a special place in heaven for mothers who only have boys. Okay? Because boys are just a, they're just a different part of humanity, especially as they're adolescents. Okay, they're kind of like puppies until they get eighteen, and uh, you know it just that's just that's just part of it. And so there were times that the boy, a little boy, is the kind of the kind of creature of humanity that's going to come through with dirty, muddy feet and and walk through the floor that you just mopped, ladies, just so that he can give you a bouquet of flowers that he picked outside and tell you how much he loves you. Okay. What are you going to do with that? Ah, oh, oh, okay, uh, thank you. Uh, you know, and it just, it just, that's just the way it is. My mother went through all kinds of things. I remember the time that we went to the, we went to the beach. Now, most people go to the beach in the summertime. That's not when we went. We went to Huntington Beach, South Carolina, and, and we went at a time that it was cold. It was in the 30s, and we were supposed to be camping in a tent. Well, I mean, with all boys camping in a tent, three degrees, yeah, let's go! Ah, did you bring a sleeping bag? Ah, ah, am I going to need one? (laughs) Yeah, you're going to need one. My mother, however, drew the line on that particular trip. We were coming into the state park, and it said, there in this part of South Carolina, it said, do not feed the alligators. My mother said, I am not sleeping in a tent in a park that says we do not feed the alligators. Looking back on it now as an adult, I suppose it probably made sense. I mean, the door of the tent was definitely alligator level. If they wanted to get in, man, they could just come right on in. But you know what? We were boys. We could handle it. So we slept in the tent. My mom and dad decided they were going to sleep in the back of the truck, and that's where they slept. I mean, it was, it was cold and all that, but my mother said, I'm not doing it. I'm not sleeping in a tent where an alligator can get in. Now, in the end of the day, we didn't see any alligators, and, uh, or at least not around our camping area, but that's the kind of life that she lived. I mean, we were rough and tumble boys, and that's just, that was just life. So one of the things that was very important to my mother was teaching her three boys how to get clean. Well, I'm the oldest, and so I remember thinking to myself, I got this bathing thing down. I don't know how old I was. I don't maybe six. I don't know. I made a fundamental assumption. If my body is wet, it must be clean. Yes, I made that. Some of you have boys. You, you, you're already ahead of me. You, you, you get this. <laughs> but that was the assumption I made. If my body is wet, it must be clean. My mother did not see things that way. She was in the business of convincing me of a higher standard of cleanliness. 
Oh, I remember, I remember parading past my mother after getting my body all wet and therefore in my mind all clean. And she'd say, wait a minute. Don't you go to your room until I inspect you. You know, my mother could find dirt in places that I didn't even know existed on my body. I remember, I remember she said, you're not clean. I looked at myself, I said, yeah, I am clean. She said, turn your arm over. Somebody had smeared mud on my towel so that when I dried off, Pastor Forsberg, that dirt got on the back of my arm. It had to be. Because I know I was clean when I got out of the tub, right? My mother would say, let me look behind your ears. No. Please? No. She would pull back my ear, and there were times as a six-year-old, or however old I was, I thought to myself, she's going to pull my ear completely off. And she would say, you get back in the tub, you're still filthy! Look on the back side of your elbow. Whoever does that? But there was dirt there. Sure enough, she was right. Then she would look at me and she'd say, there's enough dirt behind your ears to grow potatoes! I, I, we didn't grow potatoes in South Carolina. I had no idea what the significance of that was. Grow potatoes? What does that mean? Now, I understand you've got to have a lot of dirt to grow potatoes, you know. And uh, so she would say these things, and I, I just, I did know, though, that I had to be very careful. Because if I didn't get myself clean, my mother had a superpower. Mothers have superpowers, you understand that, yeah. My mother's superpower was she could, she could fundamentally transform a wet washcloth. Now, I, I work with some wood. There's some pens back there that I've turned and I've built some furniture. I built a piece for the pastor a few years back. And so I like to work with wood. It's, it's just, a, just a hobby of mine. And so in my shop, there's all kinds of sandpaper. Now, one of, the, one of the grits of sandpaper that I have is 60-grit sandpaper. In my shop, if you have to get out the 60-grit sandpaper, here's what it means. You should have cut it shorter than you did. But because you didn't cut it short enough, it's now too long. You can't put it on the saw anymore because it's already joined to something else, which means you're going to have to sand it down. That's when you get out the 60-grit sandpaper. And you sand and you sand and you sand. Well, I'm going to tell you, 60 grit, that's the toughest, that's the most aggressive sandpaper that I have in my shop. And I don't use it very often. Most of the time I use higher grits and so forth. But man, the 60 grit sandpaper, every now and again it comes out. My mother could turn a, wa a wet washcloth into 60 grit sandpaper. I mean, the only thing that was missing was the noise of a random orbital. she would take that washcloth and commence to grinding away at my skin. Be quiet, you need to get clean. Oh my. Those were the days. And I learned as a boy that there had to be a higher standard of cleanliness. I learned that what I thought was clean was not her definition of clean. You know, that's really what the Bible says needs to happen in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. You see, you and I think we have a standard of clean. Well, yeah, I'm okay. I'm alright. I'm good. I'm good. Be careful. Be careful. 
God addressed the church in the book of Revelation chapter 3 that made that fundamental assumption. I'm rich. I'm increased with goods. I have need of nothing. Jesus said, you know not that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Be careful of the sin of spiritual self-satisfaction. Here in this passage of Scripture, the Bible says this. He says, I'll tell you, as you cleanse yourselves, the standard of being clean is not yours. It's not your pastor's. It's not mine. It is the standard of Jesus Christ himself. There is a higher standard to which we call you. And that is that you and I are to perfect holiness in the fear of Almighty God. That's the standard. That's the mark. So I ask you tonight, it's a Sunday night crowd. These are the faithful of the church. I get that. I understand that. But I ask you this question tonight. Are you clean? Are you clean? Not clean with the standard that I had as a little six-year-old boy. But clean in the sense of perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Father in heaven, I pray that you'd help us this evening. I pray that